John chapter 11, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John, and so let's just get a bit of a running head start to where we left off last week. If you join me, verse 38 of John 11, we read that Jesus, again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone, but Martha, the sister of him who was dead, this being Lazarus, said to Jesus, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. But Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard, that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by say this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when Jesus had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died, it's being dead four days, came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Following verse 44, John, after this really incredible miracle, the resurrection of Lazarus, after recounting the story, telling us what occurred, John swiftly diverts our attention. Wouldn't you have loved to have gotten more info? The reaction of those standing by? I mean, this man had been dead for four days. And he came hobbling out of the tomb, bound in the grave clothes. And yet, instead of giving us more info on what was happening and the reaction, the emotions of of Mary and Martha, John takes us from this bound Lazarus needing to be loosed, and he turns our attention to those who were present, those witnessing this particular miracle. Verse 45, John writes, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary. These were the professional mourners that had gathered. When they had seen the things Jesus did, many of them believed in Jesus, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Now, in response to this most unexpected resurrection of Lazarus, John tells us that there was a group of people who, without question, believed in Jesus. But there was another group who instead of believing in Jesus, in response to the resurrection of Lazarus, they run off to the Pharisees and they tattle on him. How amazing, really, that in the presence of such a miracle as the resurrection of a man who had been dead for four days, that anyone wouldn't have believed in Jesus. The fact that there's any unbelievers boggles the mind. And what this really illustrates is the fact that belief is ultimately a matter of the heart and not of the mind. Here were a group of people who knew the truth. They had seen Jesus for who he was with their own eyes. Jesus was the resurrection and the life. Lazarus resurrected after four days. It was undeniable. They saw him walk out of the tomb. And yet, there were still people who rejected Jesus. 
I have found more often than not, and this is a point that we should all keep in mind, especially if we're evangelizing or we're witnessing or we're telling someone about Jesus. Keep in mind that Jesus is is rejected more often than not, not for a lack of evidence, but an unwillingness to accept the implications of what that fact would mean for someone's life. Like the truth People reject Jesus not because there isn't evidence, because they don't want to accept him. And there's often no limitations to the lengths the unwilling heart will go to justify a rejection of Jesus. The sad reality is what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 19 remains as true today as it did the moment it was uttered. Jesus said, This is the condemnation. The light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. It's not that they didn't see the light, or recognize the light, or accept what the light was, but they loved wickedness more. Well, verse 47, we're told that the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council. And they said, what shall we do for this man, being Jesus, works many signs, most notably the healing of the man born blind and this resurrection of Lazarus. They conclude if we leave him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. First, John tells us, following the news of Lazarus' resurrection, that the chief priest, that's, that's worthy of note, it's in the plural. There was always this back and forth, who was the high priest? Was it Caiaphas or was it Annas? Even when Caiaphas was high priest, there's a mountain of evidence that Annas was really the one pulling the strings. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were the predominant political party in Israel, were told by John, they gathered a council. In the Greek, this word council is synedron, which can be translated as Sanhedrin. Though the Romans were without question in charge, they did allow the, the Jewish people a measure of autonomy concerning local affairs. As such, the Sanhedrin, which was a ruling body of 70 plus the high priest, so 71 members, it functioned as a ruling bottle. They had the authority to adjudicate anything but capital punishment. Now, at this particular gathering of the council of the Sanhedrin, the agenda focused on the growing popularity of Jesus and really what they should do about it. Their concern was that the people rallying around Jesus as the Christ, as their Messiah, might foster some type of revolt, a revolution that the Romans would be forced to deal with. Their fear, and there was cause for this fear, was that if the people started hailing Jesus as their king, if a riot ensued, the Romans would have no choice but to come in and take away both their place of power And the nation as a whole might be destroyed. This would occur, by the way, in 70 AD anyway. These men, who are charged with overseeing the nation, the power brokers, they are so convinced that the groundswell had reached a tipping point that they believe now, they conclude, there's no other choice. We have to intervene. They even conclude, and it's a wonderful compliment, They said, quote, if we leave Jesus alone, if we do nothing, everyone will believe in him. What a testimony 
to the effects Jesus was having on the masses. Well, verse 49, and one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. That's audacious. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, or literally instead of the people, and not the nation as a whole should perish. Caiaphas, who is going to become a significant player in the chapters to come, he sought to justify here in this this council, he sought to justify killing Jesus as being moral, even expedient, in light of the greater good. His reason is that preserving the people, preserving the nation by killing Jesus just made sense. In fact, he argues it was their responsibility. Now, what makes this particular statement so interesting is that writing years later, so John is penning this gospel some 50 years after the fact, with the benefits, by the way, of hindsight. And he adds here for us that this declaration made by Caiaphas had come to be seen years later by those who were present as actually being prophetic for reasons the high priest would have never, ever imagined. Verse 51, John says that Caiaphas did not say this on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Then from that, that day on, they plotted to put him to death. This, the statement made by Caiaphas that it is expedient for one man to die for the people was truer words than Caiaphas ever knew or was aware. It would, was, it would be necessary, completely necessary, that Jesus die, not just for the Jewish people, but for the entire world, so that none would perish, but all would have everlasting life. John adds this to be clear. While the intents of Caiaphas and these Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, were wicked, God was still the one behind the scenes pulling the strings. This was all working according to God's will. Though John has already recorded for us two attempts made on Jesus' life, two attempts to stone him to death, John wants his audience, you and I, to know that in response specifically to the resurrection of Lazarus, these religious leaders and this council, the Sanhedrin, They hatch a scheme. John writes that from that day on, this group of powerful men plotted how they might put Jesus to death. You should note it would only take a few weeks for this particular plot to come to fruition. Verse 54, therefore, because of the plot against Jesus, he no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. This was about 15 miles north, northeast of Jerusalem. And there Jesus remained with his disciples. This retreat would last for about a month or so until the Feast of Passover. Verse 55, And the Passover of the Jews, John says, was near. And many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. This purification occurred the week before Passover. And they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves, as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? As Passover neared and the pilgrims began making their way to the city, 
John says, to purify themselves. So they're, they're religious in nature. The atmosphere is on edge. Sensing things were coming. And the population knew it. Things coming to a head between Jesus and the religious establishment. People were curious. They wanted to know the buzz. Would Jesus come to celebrate Passover at all? All things considered. And according to John, the general consensus was that Jesus wouldn't come to Jerusalem for Passover. Now both the chief priests, verse 57, and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he was to report it that they might seize him. Knowing the real political volatility that's, that was associated with massive crowds ascending on the city of Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, of all things, a, a, a feast that commemorated, celebrated, God raising up a deliverer to free the people from the bondage of the Egyptian captivity. The religious leaders here, they feared what Jesus might do when or if he were to arrive. So to be proactive, John says these men gave a command that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might seize him. Now this word command it implies that the Sanhedrin, at this point in time, the week leading up to Passover, actually issued a public statement, an official declaration. Posters went up throughout Jerusalem proper. Jesus, at this juncture, is officially a wanted man. There is a bounty set on his head. Now, the obvious challenge that these religious leaders faced would be finding someone, A, willing to turn Jesus in because he was very popular among the people. And the challenge was finding a perfect opportunity to seize Jesus away from the mobs so a riot wouldn't ensue because people would fight to protect Jesus. And so they have a plot. The scheme is hatched. Wanted posters go up. Now they just need someone to, to turn him in and give a time and location where he would be away from the crowds privately so that they could seize him. It sets the stage for what's coming. John chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. Then, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There, in Bethany, they made Jesus a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with Jesus. While John is not interested in presenting for us a chronological record of Jesus' life, like Matthew or Mark or Luke does, choosing instead to write with a more thematic bent, John does here establish a clear time frame for this event and those to follow. He opens chapter 12 telling us that six days before the Passover, Jesus comes back to Bethany from Ephraim. Now what makes this detail significant is that it tells us we're on the precipice of the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. A week that will begin with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We call this Palm Sunday. A week that would reach a low point on Passover itself. Good Friday. Jesus' crucifixion. And yet John here, he opens the chapter telling us that we're six days before the Passover. 
which means that it is the Saturday beforehand. So a little bit of time frame John is establishing for us. Now, one of the interesting things, and this is kind of a side note, but I, I find it fascinating, particularly about John's narrative. So the Gospel of Luke dedicates roughly 25%. So 25% of Luke's gospel is dedicated to what we would call Jesus' week of passion. These last seven days. 25% of Luke. Matthew, it's 33%. Mark, it's approximately 40%. But in, in regards to the gospel of John, an astounding 50%, half of John's gospel, is solely focused on seven days of Jesus' earthly ministry. John will close his gospel in chapter 21, verse 25, saying, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And he placed that statement in light of the fact that his gospel only centers itself on seven days of Jesus' life. His point is profoundly honest. Now, while Jesus came into the region. Specifically, so he comes to Bethany to celebrate the Feast of Passover. So he's come, he's going to celebrate Passover, he's going to celebrate it in Jerusalem. His custom, though, was to lodge not in Jerusalem. Jesus would lodge in a suburb of Jerusalem, this being Bethany, at the home of Simon the leper. And we are introduced to him in context to this passage in other accounts. Now, I noted a few weeks ago that Simon, this man Simon, the leper, a man who no doubt had been healed by Jesus, was a man of, of considerable means. And because of the relationship that, that blossomed between Jesus and Simon, this man's home in Bethany was always open to Jesus and his disciples whenever they were visiting the city. So anytime you're reading of Jesus in Jerusalem, he's often lodging here in the home of Simon, the former leper. And what ends up resulting is that Jesus, because of the amount of time he spent, became really good friends with Simon and Simon's adult children, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So here's the connection. They're friends. Now we'll spend the rest of our time in John's Gospel focused on this final week. And what I want you to know is that every single day, Jesus will take the two-mile journey from Bethany. He'll head west over the Mount of Olives, down the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, and up into the temple precincts every day. He'll make this journey from the home of Simon the leper, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, into the city, and then at sunset, he'll make the journey back, heading east, out of the temple, down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, down the Mount of Olives, to the city of, of Bethany, this two-mile journey. Now, upon Jesus' initial return to Bethany from Ephraim, John tells us that something important happened worthy of, of, of documenting, that they made Jesus a supper. This is evidence that they were Southerners. It was not dinner, it was supper. And imagine for just a moment, this table, the scene, like the players, who's there? You've got Jesus, you've got Mary, Martha, Simon, you've got Lazarus, you've got the Motley crew, Peter and James and John and Andrew, Judas Iscariot, if you place this story in its context of the other gospel narratives, you also have, likely at this dinner, a man who had just been healed, a beggar in Jericho, 
a blind man named Bartimaeus, probably sitting there. You also have a tax collector, kind of a scurvy type guy, named Zacchaeus, is probably also sitting here at this particular feast. And at some point during the supper, as they're eating and they're talking and they're fellowshipping, we're told in verse 3 that Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house, John says. Imagine this old man recalling this story. The detail that really jumps out is that the whole house was filled with this fragrance of the oil. Now, what a scene. Before we get to the particulars of John's account, I I should mention that this story is also recorded for us in Matthew chapter 26, as well as Mark 14. I also should point out that while a lot of the details of this story are similar to what you find in Luke chapter 7, it's not the same occurrence. In the Luke narrative, the story is in Galilee, not Bethany. It's at the home of a skeptical Pharisee named Simon, but not a dear friend like Simon the leper. And the woman, the central character, was a known sinner, not a godly woman like Mary. Now John begins his account here remembering how Mary took a pound, 12 fluid ounces, a very costly oil of spikenard. Now, there's a lot we don't know about spikenard. But we do know, historically, that it was potent, was strong, condensed. It was reddish in color. It was sweet-smelling. It was an oil that was yielded by crushing the head, or literally the spike, of a nard, spikenard. Crushing the spike of a nard. A nard was a plant native to eastern India. That tells us that not only is this oil difficult to come by, but in the very next verse, we're going to learn that a pound of spikenard would have been very expensive. Hard to get, very expensive. Supply and demand. We'll be told in the verses to come that it was worth approximately 300 denarii, or what scholars estimate to be roughly a year's wage for a working man. So the one thing clear about the passage right from the beginning is that what Mary is bringing to Jesus is very likely her most valuable possession. Now as I play this scene out in my mind, there's Jesus and the boys passing around some lamb, rack of lamb, some hummus, some bread. They're eating, they're merry, they're talking about the playoffs coming up on the weekend and how Georgia needed to get rid of their offensive coordinator anyway and the backup guy was really doing the job and they're just chewing the fat, chit-chatting and just a normal guy's meal. At some point, as I'm playing this scene out, you have Mary, quiet Mary. She enters from the back, inconspicuous to start. But she begins to make her way through the room to where Jesus is. Now, Jesus is not sitting at a table like we imagine a table. This is the Middle East. It's a low table with pillows. So he's sitting on the floor. And so she's making her way to Jesus. And everyone kind of begins to notice that she's carrying something very ornate. 
The other gospel authors describe it as an alabaster flask. Now, you're not sure what's about to happen. But Mary stoops down onto the floor, right there in front of Jesus. Everyone quiets. Mary breaks the seal on the flask, and the room floods with this, this smell. And then she begins to pour the oil. Now, Matthew and Mark tell us that, that Mary pours the oil on, onto Jesus' head. John says that by the time it reaches his feet, so it pours down him, she begins to anoint his feet, and, and she begins wiping the feet with her hair. This is a very intimate thing. This word anointing, it's a loaded term. In Jewish culture, you would understand what it meant. An anointing implied something very deliberate. Almost a ceremonial act on the part of Mary. In Hebrew culture, anointings were were common. But they took place for kings, for priests. For Mary, it was a physical ceremony. And she's recognizing something here. For the priests and the kings, it would be recognizing a a spiritual anointing. A physical act representing something spiritual. A calling for a specific task or a position. Now we have no idea what Mary is doing while while this is happening. What she's saying. If she's crying. If she's weeping. If she's praising. Mary's words are not included for us. But this act of anointing Jesus' feet with the oil and then wiping them off with her hair was powerfully intimate, deeply personal. As a matter of fact, if you were there, you would have been feeling very awkward. You could hear a pin drop. What is she doing? Now, in order to grasp what she's doing, you need to understand her motivation. And her motivation is actually recorded in verse 7. Jesus will say that she has kept this, speaking of the alabaster flask, of the spikenard, she has kept this for the day of my burial. Now the irony of that statement is that Mary made a decision to use the oil premature. Jesus is alive. Jesus hasn't died. She had kept this for the day of Jesus' burial, but now something has happened that has caused her to to present it to him now and not use it then. You know, the case can be made through Mary's actions that she, unlike the others, really recognized. She knew why Jesus had actually come for the feast of Passover. Jesus had not kept that a secret. Three times he'd made it very clear publicly, I'm going to die. I will be betrayed. I will die. I'm going to die. Most people didn't get it, rejected it resisted it. Mary seems to recognize it. Jesus had come to to lay down his life. She understood the significance of the moment. What would follow? Regardless, instead of using the spikenard in the actual burial process, Mary decides to use the spikenard to honor Jesus while he's very much living in this personal way. You know, for Mary, this offering, looking forward It looked forward to a work she knew Jesus had come to accomplish. It was an act of worship looking to something, not from somewhere. 
Again, the imagery of the scene would have been powerful. It would have been moving. As Mary goes through this anointing process, she, she, she breaks the flash. She pours it onto Jesus' head. It runs from his head over his clothes down to his feet. Imagine the scene, what that would have looked like. Spikenard was a deep crimson. It was a red. Jesus' head and his hair and his garments down to it. it. He would have looked like a bloody mess. And then as Mary is, is wiping his feet with her hair, that oil would have covered her head and her hands. Her face with the same potent hue. There is no question. The whole scene, the imagery established, foreshadowed what would happen on Passover. Just a week's time. Though I can imagine everyone was a bit taken back by what was occurring, not so with Jesus. Mary had come before her Savior in worship and adoration. She had taken her most valuable possession and sought to honor Jesus with it. She gave Him all. Her all, herself. In a way, I believe this act of anointing Jesus with the spike nerd was Mary's way of thanking Him in advance for the sacrifice he had come to offer. Now, the first lesson that we should take away from Mary's example is what it says about the true essence of worship. Fundamentally, and I think our culture gets this so wrong, but worship, friend, is all about blessing Jesus, not moving me. True worship centers exclusively on Jesus' experience in the moment of worship, not mine. In a sense, worship or the attributing of worth should be Christ-centric and Jesus-focused. Now, that's not to say that we don't receive a reciprocal blessing in the act of worshiping. It's true that an offering designed to foster an experience for Jesus tends to boomerang its way back an experience for the worshiper. And yet, the experience for self, friend, cannot... Be the chief pursuit of one's worship, or you're not worshiping at all. Mary came before Jesus, fell on her knees, her face, anointed Him. She came not for what she would get in return. She came for what she would give. To make my point, may I ask a rhetorical question? Don't answer me out loud. But, but what makes a good worship service? You know, sad to say, the answer often reveals a very warped and twisted perspective of worship. Tragically, we live in an age whereby the modern Christian worship experience, expected by the majority of church attenders, you know, an experience that's enhanced with professional musicians, charismatic leaders, high-end technology, lights and sound, Immersive visuals, catchy sing-alongs. This type of worship in our culture, the worship experience most want and desire, is me-centered. It's me-centric. Now, I'm not knocking professionalism or technology, but the sad truth is that if a person comes to a worship experience and they don't experience some type of euphoric spiritual high, you know how you know they'll conclude? They'll say, man, the worship wasn't any good this morning. If you don't leave with tinglies and goosebumps, oh man, it was just, 
man, the music was just off. It just wasn't, you know, wasn't doing it for me. Even more disturbing, if it was doing something, the conclusion is that worship was awesome. Again, it's all about me and my experience. This is an epidemic in Christianity today that's been studied extensively by a gentleman named George Barna. This self-indulged Christian worship experience. This is what he writes from his research. We found that a common obstacle to facilitating real worship is that the church's leaders do not understand what worship is and what it isn't. Despite seminary education and denominational guidance, a shockingly high number of church leaders have no real understanding or philosophy of worship. For most Americans, worship intends to satisfy or please them, not honor and please God. Amazingly, few worship service regulars argue that worship is something they do primarily for God. A substantially larger percentage of attenders claim that attending worship services is something that they do for personal benefit and pleasure. Author Paul Tripp, he once tweeted to this point, writing, corporate worship is a regular, gracious reminder that it's not about you. You've been born into a life that is a celebration of another. Mary came and her example for us, she worshipped. And this was honored. This was accepted. But it wasn't about her. It wasn't about what she would get in return. It was about honoring Jesus and recognizing something about Jesus and exalting Jesus. It was about anointing Jesus in a position that Jesus had in her life. It wasn't about tinglys and goosebumps. It was about exalting the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, her Savior. Mainly, worship, friend, should be an opportunity to exalt Jesus, to glorify Him for who He is and what He's done. And if you don't get a tingle, tingles from it, that's alright. Your worship was still powerful enough. Mary came before Jesus. She gave Him her all. She expected nothing in return. Her worship cost her. And in the end, please note this, Jesus loved it. He loved every moment of it. According to Matthew 26, verse 10, this is what Jesus said of Mary. She has done a good work for me. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached and the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. Do you want your worship to be viewed by Jesus as a good work? For him? What do you give the Savior? You know, there's only one thing that we can do that God can't. And that is worship. God can't exalt anything because there's nothing to exalt above himself. Jesus attributes worth. We get to worship. The one thing you can give the, to the God who gave it all is your praise and adoration, your worship. But, verse 4, one of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. Now, let's pause for a moment. Judas is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew name Judah. 
And according to Luke 22, verse 3, Iscariot was likely a surname, implying, some scholars, that he was from the town known as Kyrios. This Simon, we don't know anything about, is different than the host, the man's home that we're in. Simon the leper, this man is not. But we're told that Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, let that sink in for a moment. The inspiration of the Holy Spirit is telling us that Judas was one of Jesus' disciples. At this point, he is a disciple, a recognized, bona fide disciple. And yet, sad to say, John adds that this Judas would betray Jesus. And that's presented in a future tense. So Judas, he says, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Then John adds that Judas said, said this, not, for, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box. And Judas used to take, or was constantly taking in the, in the tense of the Greek, what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial, for the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. You know, amazingly, Jesus' rebuke of Judas when he says, leave her alone. I wonder what the tone was, right? Like how that came across. Stop it! Back off! Leave her alone! You know what that does mean is that, that it implies that Judas had the audacity to be voicing his objection here, not in private, but as Mary is still in the very act of anointing Jesus' feet with her hair and the whole thing, this is Judas voicing up. It's still happening. You wouldn't talk about just a lack of timing or tact. You know, maybe in private have the discussion. You know, was this really the best utilization of our resource? But he says this in the moment. How awkward. Judas is not only here challenging the offering, but he's challenging Jesus' willingness to accept it. Now, this is not Judas alone, by the way. According to, again, Matthew and Mark, the other disciples were in agreement with Judas' sentiment. As Mary is still wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, Judas, for reasons John would come to understand much later, he points out that her offering could have been so much more useful if the spikenard had been sold and the money used to care for the poor. His argument is that what's happening is just a poor utilization of ministry resources. What about the poor? The poor. Though on the surface, Judas, he sounds spiritual. Oh man, he just cares about the poor. How can you not care about the poor? What kind of a heartless person doesn't care about the poor? And no doubt, like on the surface, his objection carries some merit. Like, we could have done a lot of really good work with this. Jesus here not only tells him to back off, but he counters what Judas says with really a very interesting idea. Jesus here justifies Mary's offering by saying, you want to talk about the poor? The poor? You will have with you always, but me, you do not always have. You know, I, this might sound strange, but this, this verse actually played a very significant role in my life years ago. 
I had gone to Bible college, was 18 years old, was 2,800 miles across America. Last place on earth I wanted to be was Snellville, Georgia. So I'm in Southern California, loving life, living the dream in Bible college. Three weeks into my first semester, I got a call about 6 o'clock in the morning, and some planes had crashed into the towers. Like in that moment, the only place I wanted to be was 2,800 miles back home. <laughs> and if you recall the, the, that scene, that moment, the environment, man, it was crazy. We didn't know if there were more planes, if we were going to war, if we were still under attack. You couldn't catch a flight anywhere. Everything was grounded. People were renting cars and driving home, and I'm at Bible college. And man, God did something in my life. I really felt a calling for ministry. It's why I'm here today. What happened on September 11th stirred me. The only thing that mattered from that point moving forward, was serving Jesus. I was so excited, pumped up, that call, that ember, that glow, so powerful in my heart. I wanted to get in my car and drive home then, immediately. I ain't wasting my time, as I'm telling my dad on the phone, with Bible college. People are dying and going to hell. Time is short. I'm done with this. I'm coming home. And he was like, whoa, pump the brakes. And he said, Zach, Jesus said, the poor you will always have. But me, you won't always have. And in the application, what what, what the Lord was telling me through my dad was that you have a unique opportunity right now to spend two years at my feet. Ministry, the poor, it's always going to be there. The the, the needs are endless, but you're not always going to have the opportunity to just sit at my feet and study my word. Hey, you'll go into the battle, but you don't always have the opportunity to, to learn the game plan. And, and this is what Jesus is saying. Knowing that he's going to die, knowing that, that the time was short, knowing that he would rise, but that there would only be 40 days and he would ascend, knowing that the opportunity to worship him in the moment like this wouldn't happen again. He says, ministry you're going to have. You're focused on things that, yeah, are noble and and have merit and have weight, but right now there's something more excellent. An opportunity with me. You know, one of the important realities that Jesus' statement to Judas illustrates for us is this concept. Earthly ministry is ultimately evaluated based upon how the work seeks to honor and glorify Jesus and not always what it tangibly accomplishes. Let me repeat that. This is an important concept. Earthly ministry is ultimately evaluated based upon how the work honors and glorifies Jesus more than what it actually accomplishes. This is why, friend, Jesus, over and over and over again, I could point to many examples, Jesus is more interested in the way ministry is conducted as opposed to just what results from a ministry. The way ministry happens is more important than what results from a ministry from the perspective of Jesus. Like, never forget, Jesus will prioritize over accomplishments, faithfulness. You will enter heaven based upon well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. There's no like, well done, and then Jesus rolls out a list of what you've done. The only thing Jesus cares about more than accomplishments is that you were just faithful with whatever he put in front of you. Because guess what? It's not your work anyway. It's his. 
Make of me your hands and feet. I just want to be to the people around you what you want me to be. As we sing the prayer of St. Francis, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, we live in a, a church culture whereby we excuse away so many unbiblical church strategies under the guise that, you know what, the ends justify the means. Like I have a dear friend, a brother, who attends a very large, seeker-friendly church. He knows, he'll tell me, I know the model's not biblical. And yet he justifies the existence of the strategy by pointing to the results. Yeah, I know this is not the right way to do church, but I mean, hey, the ends justify the means. There's large conversion rates, reaching the lost, huge attendance. The question we need to consider does the ends justify the means to Jesus? Do we get a pass as long as we're productive? No. Honestly, I think Jesus finds how a church conducts ministry to be of much more importance than the tangible results yielded from that ministry. You know, people will say, healthy sheep reproduce. But you know, if, if you allow them, so do unhealthy sheep. Sheep reproduce regardless. And often, unhealthy sheep just pass along their defects. You know, the other interesting concept that Jesus is establishing here is that regardless of our efforts, this is a diff difficult one, there is a limitation to what we can, we can actually do. You know, that there is a limitation to what can be redeemed in a fallen world. Again, this statement, the poor you have with you always, intends to keep our ministry focused more on making citizens of heaven than on bettering the conditions of earth. We could try to eradicate hunger. Guess what Jesus said? There'll still be poor people. Now that's not saying that we shouldn't care for people. But we should prioritize what's most important. There's an old saying. That you can become so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And some people hate that statement. And I, I guess I understand why. But, but the greater question or statement is I think the danger for the church is becoming so earthly minded we're no heavenly good. That we've become so focused on making America a better place that we forget America's not going to last. It'll end. Yeah, I'm a citizen of America. But I'm a citizen of heaven more than anything. My king's on a throne. You know, this selfless act of Mary. It's recorded three times in the gospel accounts. It's a testimony, a monument. But, in our purposes, John. John repeats this story for a bigger reason. And that is to deepen this growing plot against Jesus. I mentioned earlier that Jesus is a wanted man. There's a bounty on his head. And yet the religious leaders need someone to hand Jesus over and specifically a time and a place that, he, that, that they can arrest him apart from the crowds. According to both Matthew and Luke, 
and implied here by John, following this rebuke, Judas actually makes the decision to join the conspiracy. Verse 9. Now a great many of the Jews knew that Jesus was there at Simon's home. So they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus. So they crashed the party, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Now as John forwards the narrative, he again mentions Lazarus. He again mentions the impact Lazarus' resurrection had on the, the political climate heading into Passover. Though only a few weeks have passed, what Jesus had done with Lazarus had sent a shockwave through Jerusalem. The city was buzzing. People came out. They wanted to see Jesus, but they also wanted to see Lazarus, the man who had been dead for four days. And it's because of these things that John tells us here that the chief priests also hatch a plot to put Lazarus to death. The irony. Now, I'm not going to bore you with the details, but the high priest in particular. Most of the Sanhedrin were Pharisees. The high priests, Caiaphas in particular, were part of another group, a minor group known as the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the more progressive, liberal wing in Israeli politics. They didn't believe in the supernatural, angels, nor did they believe in the resurrection. And simply put, you can understand their problem. Their theology didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, making Lazarus' very existence problematic to their theology. So they want to put him to death. In closing, there's one more application. Lazarus here becomes a target. Why? He becomes a target for persecution for one reason. His very existence, his life, was a testimony that Jesus had power. Lazarus became a target because of his testimony about Jesus. What testimony does your life communicate? Does it garner the same amount of attention? Famous preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, When men hate Christ, they also hate those whom Christ has blessed. And will go to great lengths in seeking to silence their testimony. Lazarus became a wanted man for one reason. Jesus had raised him from the dead. What a, what a point. Father, Lord, we ask that our lives...